0: If you're curious about your pet, then Your Vet Wants You to Know. Welcome everyone to today's episode of Your Vet Wants You to Know. This episode is going to be a little bit different than some of our other episodes where we talk more about pet issues and different health conditions. I'm joined again by Dr. Jess Torak. She was talking about rabies with us last time. And on this episode, she's going to be telling us her story about how she was involved with Mission Rabies and how her trip took some unexpected turns. So welcome back, Dr. Torak.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be back.
0: So tell us a little bit about Mission Rabies and what you were doing with that group.
1: So Mission Rabies is a UK-based company that provides campaigns to provide rabies vaccinations as well as spay and neuter to developing countries. So I went with them on a campaign to Arusha, Tanzania. But they also do some campaigns in other areas. I know they're going to be in Uganda this July. They also have campaigns to Sri Lanka, India, Ghana. Just to name a few so there are lots of opportunities for veterinarians vet nurses and lay people to volunteer with this organization i chose to go on this trip because i was opening my own veterinary practice within a couple of months and i wanted to take this time this chunk of time before i opened the business because i knew that wouldn't be feasible once i was a solo practitioner and so it was about a three-week commitment in terms of travel time, time and country, and then returning home. And I really wanted to give something back. I felt like I had just been working with domestic pets in Chicago in a very affluent area. And so I had all these great capabilities to do all these diagnostic tests and cure things. And I just thought, you know, there are places in the world where this isn't possible, this isn't feasible, and maybe I need to just do something for them and not just for me. So mm-hmm. that's why I organized the trip. Mission Rabies is super great to work with. They're extremely easy to communicate with. Their guidelines are very clear. They did require that I did a rabies titer prior to my adventure, meaning they wanted to make certain I had protective antibodies from my previous rabies vaccination because we would be in an endemic area and potentially be exposed to wildlife or even domestic pets that had rabies. They also required that we had a separate international medical insurance policy, which is not something that I had ever purchased before and I wasn't really very familiar with. But when I shopped around for it, my local insurance had like a little sidearm where you could add a travel policy that would cover you in specific countries, whatnot. So you fill out some information. And I think I had an option for a half million dollar policy for like sixty five dollars or a million dollar policy for eighty five. And I was like, I'll do the eighty five bucks, that extra twenty. You know what the heck? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Anything Just in can case. happen, you know, anything can happen. But I think one of the scary parts is, as you read through these contracts for these international health plans, one of them is repatriation of your remains, meaning if you die in this foreign country, they will return your body back to the United States. I was like, well, I mean, I guess if you need it, it's good to have. Yeah. So, so that was a little bit interesting. Um, and scary, so get, I bet. Yeah. Well, you know, I just think like, I guess anything can happen, right? I'm an avid scuba diver, so I understand that there are some risks when you're traveling. But that international medical insurance literally saved my life. That $85 policy made it such that I am still here today. When I first got to Tanzania, we checked into our cabins, I'll call them cabins. All of our water was solar heated and my cabin was at the very end of the line. So we only had cold showers. No big deal, right? (laughs) You're in the third world country, you're traveling, you should expect some of these inconveniences. Sure. So they divided us up after our orientation day into groups. And so I was with another veterinarian, Dr. Ashley Baker. She's from Florida. And we had three Tanzanian local people on our team, and there were about 11 different teams. So each team had one or two, at least two, sometimes three of the international volunteers, as well as two or three Tanzanian locals to help us. So they speak Swahili in Tanzania. So we needed people to help us speak, help us communicate, explain to people what we're doing. So they didn't think that we were just, you know, invaders coming into their space without any sort of warning. Each morning we would get up, and go with our teams to load our van for the day with drinking water for ourselves, as well as our coolers with the vaccinations in them, etc. And we would get a vegetarian box lunch to take with us because we would be in the field. The first two days we did what are called static stations where as we drive through town, Ishmael, <laughs> Ishmael runs an animal rescue in Arusha. He's a really wonderful human. And he would take the bullhorn out the window and yell, tangazo, 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 which means attention, attention, attention. And he would be basically announcing that we were coming in to do rabies vaccines. And so we would park our van in a pre-designated location, pop open the back, set up a table, and literally people would come in droves, droves, mostly children. Dogs would be tied with a shoelace, a chain, a scrap of rope. <laughs> One little boy came with a five-gallon bucket on his head. And I couldn't imagine. I'm like, why is this little boy with a bucket? And he set the bucket down. And there were like eight puppies inside that had their <laughs> eyes their eyes still closed. right? But the rule was, if they're breathing, we vaccinate them. You know, in Mm -hmm. the US, we don't generally vaccinate until they're at least 12 to 16 weeks of age. But in this particular situation, the goal is that you vaccinate everything that's alive that can be vaccinated because you may not ever get a chance to again, right? So, we would give them little vaccination cards. We had some little rubber bracelets that talked about why it's important to vaccinate for rabies. So, the little kids always liked getting those bracelets. They would pose for pictures and it was a really rewarding experience, right? We were at a school for our first day, so we were outside the school, and it was just droves of people. I think that very first day, amongst all of our groups, we did almost 2,000 vaccines in a day.
0: Oh my God, that's a right? lot.
1: Right, between 11 groups. So I mean, it was just crazy. It was just lots and lots and lots. So those first two days were entirely static stations where we stayed in one place and people brought their animals to us. The second set of tasks were what they called door-to-door. I decided that they need to rename it house-to-house because when somebody says to me, door-to-door, I think I'm gonna walk from my front door to your front door, it'll take me a minute. These houses are literally, we had GPS maps that were sectioned for us. And so each team was assigned a section that was color-coded to match. And our job was to blanket this area on foot and to stop at each and every residence and inquire as to how many dogs or cats that they had and ask whether or not we could vaccinate them. And so all of that information as we would process these animals in terms of doing a brief physical exam, we would deworm them. We could apply a topical flea and tick treatment if the animal had a lot of external parasites. And then we would vaccinate, right? So as we would vaccinate on the GPS map, we would drop a pin and indicate that the animals at this particular patient were vaccinated. Mission Rabies uploads all of this information on a nightly basis so that we can keep track of how much penetration we had to the area. Following vaccination, each dog or cat was marked on their forehead with a grease pen. So sort of like a blue or red kind of stick marker, like a grease mm-hmm. pen that we would mark their head with to indicate that that pet had already been vaccinated. So if other groups were coming through. Or when Mission Rabies does their scouting, right, they come through like a week later, and they eyeball how many animals they see that have or do not have grease marks on their head so they can determine the level of rabies vaccine penetration to that area.
0: I have a question because you talked about how when you came through and you stayed in one spot and everybody came to you, they came Mm -hmm. out enthusiastically in droves. What was it like when you went to people's homes? Was the reception kind of the same? Were people excited Mm -hmm. that you were there, or a little bit more wary?
1: I would say a bit more wary. Mm -hmm. And so we all had matching shirts on, and both myself and Dr. Baker were Caucasian, and the rest of our team were Native. Africans. And so, you know, here you have two white women walking up to your home unannounced. There was some apprehension. Part of that apprehension came from, and I don't want to misspeak about this situation, but my recollection is that there was some sort of viral illness that kind of went through that area. It wasn't rabies, it was something else, but lots of animals, dogs especially, were affected and they died. And it was shortly after a rabies vaccine campaign. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of the locals sort of associated that coincidentally, right? Like, oh, my Mm -hmm. dog got this shot and then it died. Right. And so the kind of general consensus was that we sort of had to convince people at their homes that this was a good idea and that it was safe and that their pets probably aren't going to die from this vaccine, but they would definitely die from rabies. And so having the native Tanzanians with us was really helpful to have those folks because they were able to communicate that really well. Um, And we had a very high acceptance rate following their explanations.
0: That's great. That's really helpful that you had people who kind of instilled some trust in the community.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it was just a cool bonding experience to spend time with them. You know, as we're walking 20 kilometers each day, we would learn Swahili words. And so I have a nice little English Swahili dictionary, like a a rooster is jogol (laughs) (laughs) and a a goat is mbuzi. And and so we'd learn all these like funny Swahili words that were very practical. And we got to see lots of natural life, right? Like there was a single house that we walked up to and there was a man there. And so I think Ismail spoke to him and said, you know, Hey, we're here to do some vaccines. Do you have a dog? And he said, yes, but the dog is out with mama and mama is cutting cow food. That was basically the translation that we were given. And so we waited in the shade for a little bit. And all of a sudden this woman came walking up the path with her long skirts and she had a machete hooked into her belt and she was carrying a big banana stalk on her shoulder. And here comes this dog just trotting along behind her. And we're like, oh, there's our patient. <laughs> <laughs> so we just had to be there and wait for the patient sometimes, which is really unique. On our third day of house to house work, we got back to the base and My roommate and I had an agreement that whosoever team came back first was responsible for buying beer that day. So (laughs) we unpacked our truck and I went to the little indoor bar and grabbed two bottles of beer. And I walked to our cabin and I was sitting outside waiting for her because she had our one room key. And I just got this really bad headache. And I was kind of... Like, sipping that cold beer and I was like, man, this is just the worst headache ever. So I took you know a whopper dose of ibuprofen and kind of thought to myself, maybe it's just extra sun. You did a lot of walking today, maybe you're dehydrated. so I was drinking a lot of water and just trying to like relax until Lauren got back. I mean, it hurt. It was the worst headache I ever had. I've had four children. This was excruciating. And by the time Lauren got there, I was almost in tears. And I tried to explain to her, I'm like, Lauren, I need your help. I need to get in there. I gotta take a shower. I need to lay down. Like I have the worst headache ever. And I started crying and she helped me. Keep in mind, I've only known this woman for six days, right? Mm -hmm. She was a veterinarian practicing in New York. And so she helped me inside and to get my boots off. And I got in the shower, which again was freezing cold because our cabin was at the end of the line. And so I'm in this freezing cold shower with a splitting headache and I, I lost vision. I went completely blind Oh no! and I sat down on the floor in this cold shower and I screamed for Lauren. I said, Lauren, Lauren, I can't see. I need your help. So she came in and shut off the water and she put a towel over me and she said, I'm going to go get Joe. Joe meant Jordana, our team leader for mission rabies. She came back with Joe and I remember them helping me put on pants and that's it. I don't remember walking out of that building. I don't remember getting into a car or an ambulance. I still to this day don't know what kind of vehicle took me to the hospital in Arusha. I don't remember arriving at the hospital. I have brief flashes of memory for the next three days. Um, nobody knew what was wrong with me. I think the second day I was in the hospital, they did a CT scan. And the doctor said that it was normal. And Jordana said, clearly this woman is not normal. I have just spent the last week with her. She's extremely sharp and brilliant and she's repeating herself and she can't remember what we spoke about five minutes ago. Something's not right. Mm-hmm. So they had to call a radiologist to come read my films because they weren't digital. The radiologist had to drive six hours
0: Oh to my come god!
1: to look at my images. So when the radiologist arrived six hours later, he read them and said, she has a bleed in her right posterior communicating artery, and she needs surgery right now. He said, I can't believe she's even still alive. (laughs) And so at that point, some arrangements were attempted to be made to get me medevaced from Tanzania to Kenya to an international hospital in Nairobi. Now at the same point in time with a I don't know how many hours time difference. I know in the middle of the night where my parents were in North Dakota, it was morning in Africa. So my mom was on the phone at 2 a.m. every night, trying to get a hold of doctors and nurses and working with Joe to find out where I was. What was going on? Was I okay? Did we need somebody to get out there to be with me? When they finally decided to move me for surgery, I couldn't move until the next morning because by the time things were arranged, it was dark and there were no lights on the runway. Yeah. And again, I don't remember any of these things. These are all recollections that have kind of been retold to me from other people's perspectives and put together. Mm -hmm. Um, apparently I was (laughs) out of my mind and I was calling people and texting and on Facebook telling my, my boyfriend at the time, like, you're making a really big deal out of nothing. I'm going to be fine. (laughs) Meanwhile, you're just
0: not there mentally. No,
1: no, I wasn't. I wasn't there. I didn't realize the gravity of the situation at all. Um, So at that point, when I had to be moved to Kenya, to Nairobi, nobody could come with me, right? I mean, Jordana was there with a whole group of other volunteers from multiple different countries. And her responsibility was to mission rabies, not to me directly. And so they put me in a medevac and flew me to Kenya by myself. And I remember waking up and I had two doctors speaking to me and they all spoke English, which was very thankful. Mm -hmm. Um, they had a printed paper image of the aneurysm in my brain that had ruptured and said, you have bleeding in your brain. You have an aneurysm. We can either clip your aneurysm or place a coil. And I said, but if you clip it, then you have to do a craniotomy which means they would have had to shave my hair and cut a hole in my skull. And they would have put a clip around the aneurysm. And they said, yes, we would have to do a craniotomy. I said, then I would like to have a coil. Well, a coil is where they go through your femoral artery, like in your groin and they drive it up into your brain and they dispense this coil into the aneurysm itself, into the defect to plug it up basically. And so I said, I wanted a coil. Why did I wake up in that moment? I was by myself. I have no recollection of anything for the three days previous. I barely have recollection of anything that happened the three days after. But in that moment, I was perfectly clear. I call that my God moment. That was a divine intervention.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And so the doctor told me, he's like, well, we're going to have to move you to um, the university hospital because we don't have the equipment here to do the coil. And so... I texted my family and said, I'm in Nairobi, but I'm at the wrong hospital. I need to go to the university hospital. And my mom texted me back and she said, oh, honey, you're already there. And so I sent her a picture of the bed sheet of the bed that I was sitting in. I said, no, I'm not. I'm at this hospital. (laughs) I said, I need to go to Aga Khan. And sure enough, I was right. I was in the wrong hospital. They did have to move me. But I mean, nobody else knew where I was supposed to be at that time. So they moved me to the University Hospital at Aga Khan in Nairobi and they coiled my aneurysm and I was in ICU for a couple of days. By the time I woke up from surgery, my boyfriend had arrived in Africa and he stayed with me for 2 weeks. About 5 days after my surgery, they had just moved me into a regular hospital room out of ICU. I had a stroke. And my whole left side was completely paralyzed. Like, I couldn't move my arm, couldn't move my leg, I couldn't sit up in a chair, I couldn't roll over and plug my iPad back in so I could watch more Netflix. I was just, I mean, I was completely disabled. Now, at
0: this time, were you more with it mentally? Were you aware of what was happening with you when the stroke happened?
1: Um, Yes and no. They had me on pretty high doses of codeine because I was still having a ton of head pain. Yeah. And... I remember when I was talking to Mike, uh, my boyfriend, he had said, your left eye looks kind of lazy. And I was like, oh, it's probably just the narcotics, right? I kind of blew it off. I didn't really know that a stroke was a possible outcome after Mm -hmm. surgery. And it was within a 24-hour period that the stroke happened. So you know, maybe there was some precursor sign, but I didn't know that it was a thing that could happen. So I wasn't worrying about it. So... At that point, they moved me back to ICU. They did another CT scan and I didn't have any additional bleeding and there was no blockage. So it was deemed as what is called a vasospastic stroke. So when the blood leaked out during the initial aneurysm, it was outside of the vessel. So it was kind of around the other vessels in the brain. And apparently when blood is outside a vessel, it irritates them and those vessels can spasm And so it was a spastic stroke, like the vessels just clamped down because they were irritated, not because there was a clot or a blockage. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't have to go on any blood thinners or anything like that. I think they had me on oxygen therapy and IVs. But I couldn't leave my room to do physical therapy because I had to stay on oxygen the whole time. And so I won myself an extra three weeks (laughs) in a hospital in Africa. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Thank, uh, thank
0: God your, your boyfriend didn't listen to you when you told him that it was no no big deal uh-huh. and nothing to worry about. And he got on a plane and headed there. I mean, that must have been an ordeal for him, too. Like, there's a lot of planning that goes into getting uh-huh. to a different country, uh, you know, especially a third world country. And for him yep. to just get on a plane and get there and be with you. I mean, that's amazing that you had that support when you were by yourself at that point.
1: Yeah, it was pretty intense. So. Each day in the morning, usually Mike would come over and hang out with me for part of the day. And eventually, they had me doing some electro shock therapy, like on my left leg around my calf and my quads. I remember the physical therapist brought me one of those rainbow loom bracelets. I don't know if you remember; they're like really tiny rubber bands that sort of get looped together. And so he told me to take this apart and put it back together as many times as I could each day because I couldn't leave. And so I was working on my fine motor skills. Mm -hmm. Um, My left arm came back relatively faster than my leg. I still have some deficits with my leg. I don't bear weight on it as well. I can't shuffle to the left very well and I can't do cartwheels anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do cartwheels
0: anymore either, but I don't think I was ever very well, good at no, cartwheels. It was,
1: it was just sort of funny, like there's a Snapchat video somewhere where my practice manager was going to video me doing a cartwheel after I got my set of orthopedic instruments and I literally just fell down. <laughs> oh no! I shouldn't laugh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, oh no, I thought I could do it. I was like, oh, I'll be fine, I'll just do this cartwheel. you yeah, know, I fell. <laughs> so yeah so now five years later we kind of laugh about it right she's like remember that one time where you tried to do a cartwheel I said I do remember Mm -hmm. yeah so I mean the hospital was an interesting experience right I mean I had a window and I was in a room by myself and because I had good health insurance my international health plan there was a woman named Margaret who came and stayed with me in my room every night she was an attorney locally And she did this for extra money for her family. So I guess because insurance paid for it, they accommodated this. And so Margaret stayed with me overnight. So she would come in around nine or 10 and she would just sleep in the chair next to my bed in case I needed to go to the bathroom or I needed help with something because I couldn't get out of bed by myself. And then in the morning, she would put me in this, like I called it the shower chair. It was like this plastic chair that had like a little cutout seat that fit over the top of the commode. Mm -hmm. So she would, she would get me out of bed in the morning and put me in this chair. And she would wheel me over the commode and then she'd leave the room for a minute or two so I could use the washroom. And then she'd wheel me into the shower and she'd hand me a bottle of shampoo and she'd say, you have to do it yourself. So I had to figure out how to wash my hair and stuff with one hand on this plastic chair situation. Every day I got to eat porridge. Porridge is basically like cream of wheat. And so we're talking, there were no vegetables, there are no eggs, there's no meat. It was literally like porridge and maybe some fresh fruit each day. So after a week and a half of eating nothing but porridge and minimal fruit, I was really constipated, right? Like this is terrible. Mm -hmm. Like I I can't walk and I'm eating all this like super dense food (laughs) every day and I'm like getting muscle atrophy from just sitting in bed. So at some point I had to have an enema and it was just terrible. Like I remember there was a day that I was just so hungry for regular food that I used my iPhone To order a Domino's pizza to my room at the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) I was just so hungry for something normal. Uh, And then I think there was another day that Mike ended up buying Kentucky fried chicken for the whole floor, just as like a thank you. And boy, you would have thought that we bought them steak and lobster. Everybody was absolutely thrilled with Kentucky fried chicken for lunch. Oh, that's nice. Right. So basic stuff. But yeah, so eventually I got up and they got me walking and I was using a pretty fancy cane. And then toward the end of my stay, the very beginning of February, so I got into Tanzania on January 11th and on February 8th, I left Kenya. So with my insurance, it paid for my flight home with a registered nurse through a company called Flying Angels karen was my nurse karen lived in italy she was from wisconsin but lived in italy with her family and so she flew from italy to nairobi she met with me on the 8th and then the morning of the 9th she came and picked me up in the ambulance and we went to the airport with my oxygen concentrator and in a wheelchair and she basically shuttled me all the way home to chicago to the hospital here so she made sure that i got to sleep during our layover that we got onto all of our flights on time. She handled all of our passports and paperwork. I mean, when they say the company is flying angels, they really aren't kidding. I mean, oh. I mean, I did get to fly business class on United Arab Emirates, which is phenomenal. <laughs> I I, bet. Was like, I was like, business class is nice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Especially after eating porridge for that oh, amount of time. Like yeah, I imagine I like- business class is, <laughs> is as if you're in heaven.
1: It was pretty nice. I had never flown business class before, so that was pretty interesting. So when I got back to the US, I ended up in the hospital overnight for observation, which, you know, through some crazy roundabout way, one of my clients who was a surgeon with the hospital group basically had to threaten litigation or exposure to media sources because the hospital was going to deny me an overnight stay because they said that I should come in through the emergency department. And if the emergency doctors deemed it necessary, I could stay overnight in the hospital. Otherwise, I should just go home. Oh my God. And this, my, my doctor friend, Dr. Kotler said, you know, this is ridiculous. This young woman is brilliant. And she just went selflessly to a third world country to help people and you're going to deny her access to medical care when she comes home. And so I stayed a night in the hospital I left the next morning. For my 40th birthday, I was supposed to go to Costa Rica, but instead, I had to have an MRI. And I remember shuffling into the MRI station with my cane, right? Because I was mobile at this point, but I still needed a lot of help. And the MRI technician had asked me, oh, do you have your implant card? And I said, I'm sorry, what? She said, your implant card that shows your serial number and the lot number from like the implant that you got. And I said, I got this placed in Africa. I didn't get one of those. <laughs> it's like, like, I hope everything's in the right spot. Uh, so I had an MRI, MRA, which means an MRI, but like an angiogram. So they placed dye and they imaged my whole brain to make certain I didn't have any other aneurysms that were undetected and that the coil was in the correct place. And in fact, it was. And I did not have any additional aneurysms. So that was pretty interesting.
0: What a relief.
1: Yeah. So... At this point, we had already broken ground on my new hospital in January, right? When I left to go to Tanzania, the plan was that we were going to open this hospital in April. And so it was a four-month build-out. And so they had already started when I left. So I had to call my construction crew from Africa and say, I am paralyzed on my left side. Please don't spend any more money. (laughs) And so when I got home in February, I started rehab. Like physical and occupational therapy about four to five hours a day. And I rehabbed like a crazy person. And I mean, the stuff I did, I would bring surgical instruments to practice suturing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had, you know, just silly exercises where they would have me get up and down off of the floor without using my arms just to make sure my legs were working properly. I'll tell you, being in a physical rehab situation like that, like a day long experience, I got to see a lot of folks who were in a far worse way than I was. So it made me really thankful for the progress that I had made and continued to make because I saw the same people day after day, not making progress and really struggling with their physical selves. Yeah. So eventually around April, I called back my construction guys and said, you guys, you know what? I'm going to be ready to work in eight weeks. Let's roll out. So they resumed construction on the hospital building and we opened the hospital on June 16th. 2017. And what was the date of the aneurysm? January 17th. So we now kind of tease and say that's the anniversary. Oh. <laughs> <I> know, we're, <laughs> we're corny. We're corny like that.
0: You have earned the right to be as corny as you want to be because the fact that you're still here with us is a testament to your own perseverance but also a testament to the people that were with you and the people that were advocating for you. I want to ask about your mom because it must have been a nightmare that no mother ever wants to go through. When did she finally get to see you and be with you?
1: She was waiting for me at the hospital when I arrived back in the States in February. So the craziest thing is that Myself and both of my siblings have had really terrible medical ordeals, Mm -hmm. and I think my poor parents are probably at their wits end already. My brother got in a really bad motorcycle wreck when he was 16 and had a traumatic brain injury. He's disabled and still lives with my parents. He's now 42. My younger sister was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was 28, and she was struggling through all of her breast cancer treatments and things during the same time period. Wow. And she actually passed away in February, secondary to metastatic breast cancer complications. So we still are losing wonderful, wonderful humans to breast cancer every single day. And so I think my mom's got a little bit of PTSD. She's like, I never know what's going to come whenever the phone rings. She's like, I never know if everybody's going to be okay or if something terrible is happening again. Yeah. Oh, I'm so, so the, sorry. The wild thing is that Jordana Bailey... Her mom, Angela, is lives in the UK, and she and my mom have become close friends over this. They were like, our two crazy girls, you know, far, far away in Africa, trying to be heroes to the world, and look what they're doing. <laughs> so, so, and still sometimes, like, even even still Joe's mom will send me, like, a hey, how's it going? Please tell your mother I said hello. So, even across the pond, as she likes to say, we still remain friends.
0: So, June of 2017 is when you opened your practice after did. five months of uncertainty and a near death experience. And this June, you celebrated the five year anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah.
1: Thank you. It's been a really great experience. I have a wonderful practice manager. Shout out to Tia. Um, she keeps everything running behind the scenes and is just a really good support for our whole team. And she's been with me since the beginning. So we now have a wonderful staff of nurses, receptionists, vet assistants. And I hired a great associate in October. And we're just a great match. And so it's been a very rewarding experience. And I'm really happy that I took the risk and persevered.
0: And what is the name of your practice in Chicago?
1: It's Urban Veterinary Associates. We're actually out in the western suburbs in a smaller village called Westmont.
0: So if any of our listeners out there want to give some love to Urban Veterinary Associates, I'll have the link to their website on the show notes so that you can reach out to them. Just give them a congratulations for all their hard work and perseverance over the last five years. Dr. Torek, I am so thankful for you taking the time to not only talk to us about rabies in the last episode, but for sharing this amazing, incredible story. I cannot believe that you gave yourself so selflessly to this project project and then by some miracle managed to survive this unforeseen health complication. And to all the people that helped you get through this, those are our unsung heroes as well. I mean, you wouldn't be here without them.
1: No, I kind of make a joke that I, I said, I feel like I'm part of that home improvement show where they park a big bus in front of your building. And then at the end, they yell, move that bus and you get to see all the cool stuff now i say there's a reason i'm here i just don't know what it is yet i'm still waiting for god to move my bus
0: yeah i really like that that's really (laughs) wonderful well thank you very much for coming on and sharing your story i really appreciate it
1: it's great to be here thanks again
0: and for everyone who's listening i look forward to your next visit with your vet wants you to know